0: Good morning, Encounter Church. My name is Ryan Hansen, and I have had the honor of being a part of this community for roughly the last year. Um, and I wanted to say a quick thank you to all those people, first off, who serve in the kids ministry. Here's a picture of my family. My six-year-old daughter has never enjoyed coming to church more than since we started worshiping here in last January, and you guys deserve the big thank you for that. We've also, me and my wife, have enjoyed sitting under Dirk's teaching. We led a small group we volunteered at a few events with you guys, and just worshiping every Sunday has been a pure joy. So, we thank you for your community and for uh, the community that you guys have built. A little bit about me <clears throat> my name is Ryan Hansen. By day, I'm a sales engineer for train, and basically, that means that I sell environments that optimize human potential. I know, isn't that impressive? That's marketing. It means I sell air conditioners, right? <laughs> <laughs> I sell cold air that makes people just a little bit less miserable at work. So that's what I do. Uh, But over the last probably 20 years, God has had me on a ministry journey that I could probably describe best as a game of pinball, God being the paddles and me being the ball. He's had me do everything from elementary to middle school, youth group leading, just trying to herd the cats and hopefully point them toward Jesus without getting too off track or pulling my hair out in the meantime. He's had me... And my wife travel literally the whole Bible. We've walked through Egypt, Jordan, Israel, Turkey, and Greece, literally learning the Bible in the context and the geography that has taken place, which was an amazing experience. That opened the door to actually leading a small group of middle and high schoolers, similar to what Josh does. We were asked to help launch a church, and my role in that was to be the adult pastor slash small group coordinator, similar to what Paula does. And he's even called me to seminary. And in January, I graduated, and here's a picture of me graduating... You know, I cannot tell you, yeah, don't worry about that. I can't tell you how stressful it is for three years to be graded on your faith. All right? I only feel worse for the professor that has to grade that paper on grace. You know, like, show me some. Come on, practice what you preach. So this is how I felt after my three years of seminary. Oh, face app. All right? I had to, like, do that hair thing to get rid of the gray. Not really. But God's had me on an amazing journey, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. I'm not sure what the next step is, but I'm honored that it's here at Encounter with you guys, and I'm honored that Dirk asked me to come in and fill in for him uh, this week. So to start, I just want to start with a question. I want to start with a question of, what do you fear? And I'm not talking about those surface-level fears like, if I see a snake, I freak out. What keeps you up at night? What has you rolling around in your bed? Has your brain going 1,000 miles an hour? What do you fear? <clears throat> I'm talking about the fear that if you're in college and you're studying for a major and you're not sure it's something you really dedicate 30 to 40 years of your life to doing. I'm talking about the fear that when you get married and the honeymoon phase is over and you start having a little conflict and you think, did I really make the right choice here? I'm talking about the fear that when your kids grow up or when you have kids and things aren't going right and you're like, am I screwing this little person up? Or maybe the fear that when your kid moves out, and you've dedicated so much of your life to your kid that you're like, I don't even know what to do anymore. Is there any me left since I've given everything to my kid? You see, if I, I, minus the kid moving out, I've had pretty much all those fears, right? Changed my major three times in college, changed my career in major ways three times. I went and got two more master's degrees to try to figure out where I should go in life. And through all that searching and everything, I think my biggest fear has nothing to do with any of those. If I was to be completely honest right now, my biggest fear stemmed from middle school. See, the first day of sixth grade, brand new school, brand new kids, brand new environment, my elementary middle school best friend who I spent every day for five years with walked up to me, handed me a piece of paper and walked away and I was like, that's weird. I looked at it, sixth grade, luckily I could read, I read it and he said, I don't wanna be your friend anymore, don't talk to me, don't ask why, and that was it. I was like, well, that's a little crushing. And whereas in sixth grade, and I think everybody's pretty good at blaming other people, I was like, he's clearly got problems. This is fine. Make new friends, you move on. I joined a hockey team. I made hockey friends, you know, friends through activity is the way to go. Forced friendships, right? So a year later, I decided to take a risk. Some movie came out I wanted to watch. Let's call some people. Let's put a little group together. Go see a movie. I called one kid, (coughs) and he said, Ryan who? I was like, Ryan from the hockey team. Uh, what are you talking about? I was like, uh, I don't know. Click. Next day, I went to school, and I was like, buddy, what are you doing? Why did you pretend not to know me? He says, who are you again? And he just, before gaslighting was a thing, he just thought it was funny to ignore me for two months. And at that point, I couldn't blame other people. I was like, maybe there's something in me that's the problem. Maybe there's a reason that people don't want to be my friends. Maybe there's something wrong with me. And I started questioning all kinds of things. You see, at that point in my life, if I was to equate myself to something from an analogy perspective, it would be this, right? I would equate myself to a pizza box. And just go with me for a second. You see, a pizza box is made with a purpose. Whoever made this pizza box said, this chicken bacon ranch Meyers pizza needs to be protected. And we need a box to protect it, right? Right? It was designed for a purpose, and I believe, Jeremiah 29, 11, I believe that God has a purpose for us. He has a plan to prosper us, and he doesn't want to bring harm to us, and he has a future for us. I believe that God created me for a purpose, just like this box was created for a purpose. But in middle school, I started to doubt what that purpose was, and I felt like a pizza box without a pizza in it, right? I felt like I was created for a purpose, but I didn't have any way of living that purpose out. I went on a journey to try to find my purpose because I felt like I didn't have one. And luckily, we have the very words of God and stories of people who go through the same problems that we go through. And today, we're going to go through a story in the Bible about a people group who are driven by their fears. So if you'll pull out your Bibles or use the Bible in front of you, or if you want to use your phone, or if you want to just read the screen, that's fine. That's fine. We're a phone-friendly church, so if you have a blue haze around you, no judgment from up here. If you don't have a Bible at home and you like the one in front of you, feel free to take it as an early Christmas present from us to you. But turn with me to Exodus chapter seven. You see, it's in Exodus that we meet the Israelites after being enslaved by the Egyptians for 400 years. They cried out to God. They said, God, we can't take this anymore. You gotta help us. And God rose up Moses. And through 10 miraculous plagues, And if you were taught the way that I taught, God punished those bad Egyptians and forced them to let his people go, right? We all watched the movie, or at least heard caricatures of it, right? But in my travels, and when I went to Egypt with my wife, I learned a little bit of context that added some depth to that story that I think can help us today. You see, Egypt at its core was driven by fear and a desire to bring order and control to their lives, it was evident even in their writing. If you look at this picture here, it's a picture I took of a cartouche. And a cartouche is basically just the way that the Egyptian hieroglyphics write the names of their pharaohs. You can see the little guy sitting on a crone, on a throne. He's Ramses II, that doesn't matter. But if you look, it's outlined. There's like a border around it. And they only put borders around the pharaohs' names. Because it was the pharaoh's job as the leader of the Egyptians to bring order and control to their lives. Everything within that border. He was responsible for bringing order and control to, and everything that was chaotic in their lives, he was responsible for pushing outside of that border and keeping his people safe from. You see, he did this by creating a very complicated religion that consisted of over 2,000 deities. They had a whole pantheon of gods, each one specifically designed to control an area that they feared. You see, they created Osiris, who they said his veins were actually the Nile River and who controlled the Nile's flow because every year the Nile flooded and it put sediment and fertilizer and stuff on the fields and when it receded, the fields were fertilized and they could grow food and Nile was the breadbasket of the world but if the Nile didn't flood, they had famine and whole bunches of people died. They created Hawthor because they had herds and herds of animals that they used for farming but they also used for food and if their animals didn't have baby animals or their animals got sick and died, then they couldn't farm and they couldn't eat more people died. They created ISIS because life was hard back then and when people got sick there wasn't all the medicine and doctors that we had now so they worshipped ISIS the God of health and healing to help heal them when they got sick and to bring health and good life to them while they were alive. And they were even afraid of things that we would even think of being afraid of like the sun goes down every night I don't know where it goes it better come back tomorrow or we're in trouble. So they created rod to, like bring the sun back every day. Like, did they have a day when it didn't come back? I don't know. (laughs) I don't think so. And we can look at Egypt, and if I'm honest, I can say right now, like, how dumb is that? You create 2,000 gods to control your fears. And they didn't just go, like, small, right? They went huge. Here's a picture of a temple. And you can see the outside walls are all wavy, and you're like, wow, they really didn't know what they were doing. But they did that on purpose, because they said everything outside of this God's control is chaos. so We want the outside wall of the temple complex to look chaotic. Inside <clears throat> was nothing but order and control. Look at some pictures. This is a temple in Edfu. It was buried in mud, so it was pretty well preserved. Everything perfectly made, perfectly square. Every wall covered in hieroglyphics, telling the story of the God, the rituals, the sacrifices required to worship the God properly, and the promises that the God made, if worshipped properly. And you think there was 2,000 gods, so they must have had at least 2,000 temples. That's a pretty long ways to go to control your fears and try to push the chaos out of your life. And whereas, like I said, I think at the surface, well, that's kind of dumb. My middle school brain, and I think our brains today, do the exact same thing. You see, in middle school, I said, hey, if people don't want to be friends with me, if I'm not worth being a friend to, I'll fix this. Right? Just like Egypt puts a border, puts a wall around themselves to keep the chaos out. It's exactly what I did. I got my contractor's license and I started building the best wall I could think of building as a middle schooler. I started learning a little bit about a whole bunch of different things so I could intelligently have a conversation with anybody about anything that they wanted to talk about. I would talk exclusively to you about you and if you ever had the audacity to ask me about myself, I mastered the joke innovated tactic of conversations. I would make a joke, I'd distract you in a funny and non offensive manner, and then I'd change the conversation topic off of myself and keep talking about something else that I was more comfortable talking with. See, I built all kinds of walls around myself to protect my little middle school brain, but by doing so, it changed my life. You see, God doesn't want us to live a walled off life. I became an acquaintance to everybody, but a friend to nobody. And I didn't even do a good job of getting rid of my own fears. Because at the same time, whereas on the outside, I didn't look like a Meyers pizza box anymore, right? On the outside, I looked like a Giordano's pizza box, right? I look like the kind of pizza box you want to be. I had it all going on. I could talk to anybody. I was social. I was thriving. But on the inside, I was scared to death that somebody might actually know who I was and reject me for it. My question to you today is, what kind of walls have you built in your lives? What kind of walls of protection have you built to keep out the chaos, to keep out the fears from getting into your lives? And what is it keeping you from accomplishing? You see, going back to Egypt, God confronts their beliefs and the walls that they built. You see, when we were in Egypt, we not only learned about the language and the context and the temples and all that stuff, but we learned about the 10 plagues. And whereas I was always taught the 10 plagues were punishment for those bad Egyptians, we learned there was something more to it. See, it wasn't punishment for the Egyptians. It was educating the Egyptians and the Israelites about what they were doing in their attempt to control their fears. You see, each of these Egyptian deities didn't actually have control over anything. Ra didn't actually bring the sun up. Them sacrificing to Ra didn't actually bring the sun up. They were doing things to make themselves feel better about their fears because they were doing something, but they didn't actually have control over what they were afraid of. And that's exactly what I did in building my walls and probably that's what a lot of us are doing. We're doing things to make us feel better, but we're not actually having the effect that we want. So each of the 10 plagues is God versus an Egyptian deity. It's God showing them tangibly, you worship this God that you've created to accomplish something that they have no power over. So let's look at a few as examples. So in Exodus 7, verse 19, it says this, The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams, the canals, the ponds, the rivers, the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even the vessels of wood and stone. God says, you worshipped Osiris to control the river, to tame your fear of floods and fear of famine. Osiris has no power of this. I have power over the river, and if I want to turn it to blood, I will. If you flip a couple chapters ahead to Exodus 9.6, it says this, and the next day the Lord did it. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one animal belonging to the Israelites died. God said, you worship Hathor to keep your animals healthy and having babies. Guess what? Hawthorne can't do anything. It's not real. But if I want to kill all your animals, boop. If I want to leave the Israelite animals alive, I'll do that too. A couple of verses later in Exodus 9, 8 and 9, it says this, Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take, your, take handfuls of soot from the furnace and have Moses toss it into the air in the presence of the Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over the whole land of Egypt and festering boils will break out over the people and the animals throughout the land. It says, you worship Isis, you do sacrifices, do all these things to keep yourself and your family healthy. Guess what? Isis has no power. What I do boils. The last one we're going to look at is in Exodus 10, 21 and 22. It says, the Lord said to Moses, stretch your hand out over the, toward the sky so the darkness spreads over Egypt, a darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and total darkness covered Egypt for three days. He said, you're afraid of the sun not coming up? Guess what? I'll not only put it down, I'll leave it down for three days. And this is true of all ten plagues. If you do a quick Google search, which, you know, I'd recommend you do, you can see all ten plagues line up with ten Egyptian gods and it's God versus the deity. I don't want to punish Egypt. I want to teach them that all the things that they're doing might make them feel better but doesn't actually accomplish anything. And I think... That's true of ours as well, that our efforts fall short. And over the last three weeks of this Advent season, Dirk's done a great job of teaching us what the different names of God mean in Isaiah 9-6, right? We've learned what God is like as a wonderful counselor, what God is like as an everlasting father, and what God is like as the Prince of Peace. Today, I want to talk about what God is like as a mighty God. Because at the end of the day, we need to stop trying to earn control of our lives And we just start giving control away to a God who is mighty enough to actually do something with it. See, like I said, I just graduated seminary in January, and I wanted to come to stage with some deep theological nugget that you could leave saying, wow, that was awesome. Because turquoise throws those in there. I leave feeling stupid every week, but convicted, right? I think that's the goal of preaching, make everybody feel stupid, yet convicted. They didn't teach me that in seminary, that's just ad-libbing, right? But the word mighty, I looked it up in the Hebrew, is gabor. And whereas I wanted something deep and theological, it basically just means strong. So I think at one point it's disappointing because there's no theological nugget, but at the same time it's comforting in that if you read the Bible, the translators do a fantastic job, and more often than not, you're going to get exactly where you're supposed to get out of it with no training and no thinking. But I think it's true. Only God is strong enough or mighty enough to control the chaos in our lives our efforts long-term will not work. They make us feel good in the short-term because at least we're doing something, but the long-term, they fall short. And if we leave with only one thing today, I want you to leave with us. We need to stop fighting battles that only God is strong enough to win because we can waste a lot of effort accomplishing absolutely nothing. But if we give up control to God, he can not only heal us, but he can point us in the right direction in the direction and the purpose that he created us for. See, in my life, God started this journey probably five or six years ago. We were at a big church and they decided that they need to start a World Vision charity running group. And my wife signed up with her friend to do a half marathon, which is good for her, bad for me. Because then when she signs up, then everybody looks at me and says, your wife's doing it? I'm like, yeah, she is. Good for her. I said, aren't you going to do it too? I said, no, 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 no. I got, played hockey for 20 years. I got a bad knee. Clicks, right? can't run on a clicking knee. I sound like a metronome. That'd be weird. I said, I have a two-year-old daughter, right? Somebody's got to keep her alive while she's running. I, I, you know, I can't take turns running. That'd be weird. Run together or not at all. And the problem is, is that if you look at purpose, usually somebody shows you something like this. This is a Venn diagram that I learned while in college. I got a master's in business during one of my career changes. $20,000, I get a Venn diagram. Yes. I was an undergrad in engineering, no PowerPoints complete without one, so it was worth it. And I think we've all heard it in one way or another, Right? If you want to find your life purpose, you take a survey of your talents and your interests and the opportunities that you have. You find that magical bullseye right in the middle and once you find that, boom, you are set. Your life is booked. You're golden. You stay in that lane and you'll be happy forever. But in my life, I've never found that bullseye. And I don't know, maybe some of you have, but I think a lot of us probably haven't. In my life, and especially the closer I get in my relationship with God... My Venn diagram looks a lot like this, where God gives me opportunities in areas that I have no talent or interest in. I had no talent in running. I messed up my knee. It clicked, right? Like, I'm going to run in circles because one leg's not my right. I had no interest. My history of running was on a treadmill in high school, right? Super loud, can't watch TV, boring. All I do is look at the thing and I say, oh, that was the worst 30 seconds of my life, right? Right? Just pull the ripcord and let the thing stop by itself. <laughs> I had no interest or op- or talent, but I had opportunity coming at me in waves. So what do you do with that? Well, I said no to this opportunity for two years. But in those two years, God was working. You see, God exposed me to this community of people. And like me, a lot of people had no talent or interest in running, but they signed up because of the purpose of bringing clean water to kids in Africa. So there were people all over the physical fitness spectrum, from people that have already run marathons to people that only run to the bathroom when it's an emergency, right? But all of them signed up for their half or their full marathon, and they all showed up Saturday morning, and they all ran together. And the people that knew what they were doing just graciously and lovingly mentored the new people. The people that were new found friends and community and nobody ran alone. People would run slower than they probably could or that they wanted to just to make sure that everybody had support. Those fast people would stick around and congratulate people and cheer them on when they finished their miles. The midweek runs which are normally alone, which are, it's horrible to run alone. People started Facebook groups to encourage, to pray for help give people the motivation to do the midweek runs, to coordinate getting together during the midweeks on those tough weeks when you had to run quite a ways or when the weather wasn't good and you had all the excuses in the world to quit. Those two years of saying no, I was exposed to a community that functioned extremely well. And after two years, Isaiah 55 nine started to ring true in my mind. See, Isaiah writes, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. See, God knew that I needed to step into an opportunity that I had no talent or interest in because it only through that that his power could shine through. If I did something I was already good at, it would be by my power that I'm accomplishing something and God couldn't actually do the work that I needed in my life. See, after two years, World Vision started a triathlon team and I thought, well, my knee's not good, but I can swim and I can bike because, you know, I'm, I'm buoyant, right? I'm not going to drown And biking is for kids, so I I should be able to do that. And by then, if I just walk the running part, nobody's going to judge me because I've already ran, I've swum, and I'm tired. That's understandable. So I thought, how could this go wrong? It's like the perfect thing. Until I signed up. My first race, a month before I was biking, somebody gave me some aero bars, you know, those like super sweet things, you know. But they didn't tell me you got to ease into them. So I'm like a 100% or nothing kind of person. I was like, arrow bar, sweet! Boom! And I leaned forward, then I got the speed wobbles, and then the wheel went sideways, and I went shooting off my bike, and I leaned on my shoulder, I rolled out of it, so I didn't break anything, but I messed it up. So for the race, I swam one-armed. You know, luckily it was a circle, so I finished, but <laughs> it wasn't, wasn't quite what I intended. During the bike, it was 56 miles, which I thought, kids' bike, how much do you really have to train? And after crashing, I was kind of scared of the whole thing, so I didn't train that much. So I was 35 miles in, and I hit a pothole, or I hit a piece of glass, or I hit something, and my tire popped, and I had all the tools to fix it, but I had no knowledge on how to do that. So I had to wait for a van to come and save me, so I lost 45 minutes. And then they said, oh, by the way, you got 20-some miles left in just over an hour. You better really book it, or they're going to cut you off, not even let you run. I'm like, "Eh, it doesn't sound like a bad thing. But I booked it, and I made it. I was like, every like aid station, I just flew by. I was like, how much time do I got? And they're yelling times at me, and I'm like, ah. And I get there with five minutes left, but the legs were shot. And then at insult to injury, the running course was two laps. So I got to see the finish before I got to cross it. And that's just emotionally Horrible. So the whole time I finished my first six miles and I got to see the finish, I'm like, oh, if I cross it, I didn't finish the race, but I finished way more than like, you know, there's like sprint Olympic half Ironman. I signed up for half. I wonder if they'd give me an Olympic medal because I completed that. I was like, maybe I should just quit. Until in the periphery, God put a guy in my periphery that made the turn with a 67 on his leg and triathlons are horrible because they write your age on your leg just so when you get past, you can feel horrible about yourself you know so i'm like if somebody at 67 is going to do this next lap i should probably at half of that do the same so i said buddy buddy can i jog with you and he's like whatever i'm like okay thanks he was not from World vision so we were two-thirds of the way through the loop. We had a couple miles left, and the motorcycle cop came up next to us, and I'm like, well, I'm definitely not speeding. What's going on here? And I looked at him. I said, like, are we the last two? He's like, oh, yeah, by a ways. And I'm like, oh, thanks. I look at my watch. I'm like, are we going to finish by the cutoff? He's like, well, it's like 100 degrees outside. I rated ahead. They're going to keep the finish line open for you. You'll probably miss it by 10 minutes or so at this pace, but, you know, they'll let you finish. To that, the 67-year-old guy looked at me, and he said, FYI, I started five minutes after you. You are last, not me. (laughs) And I was like, buddy, could you have a heart? Let's finish together with arms. No, nothing. So I finished the race, dead last. And on a day and a whole experience that could have been looked at as a massive failure, I saw a group of people come around me, the World Vision people, They congratulated me. They celebrated my finishing. And they showed me so much love that a day that should have been a complete failure was one of my fondest memories. All because I said yes to something that I had no business doing. So since then, I've started to look for opportunities to do things that I have no business doing. And just see what God will do through it. So last year, I got an email. You want to do the New York City Marathon? I said, in my mind, I remembered the half marathon from that half Ironman. I'm like, well, that sounds horrible. Running 26 miles and there's bridges in New York, right? It sounds horrible. But I said, okay, sign me up. So I got to run the New York City Marathon. Didn't win, in case anybody was curious. <laughs> but I broke five hours. I was exactly half as fast as the winner and my half marathon pace. This year I got an email, do you want to do the Chicago Marathon? I said, well, that's top six. New York's the biggest marathon. Two million people cheering me on. You write your name on New Jersey, they cheer you on by name. That was an experience. Maybe Chicago will be similar. They only had like a million people cheering me on, but that was enough, right? So I ran the Chicago Marathon. And now I got an email, do you want to do a full Ironman? And my wife's like, you probably should. And i was like, oh, okay. So next year I have the opportunity to do that. And God continues to work through these races. Because as I continue to say yes, Ephesians 3.20 rings in my mind. Paul writes this, Now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. You see, these races are not just about me accomplishing things. God started the process of healing my past relational wounds through this community. God showed me a community that showed unconditional love, sacrificial giving. And he showed me the importance of being vulnerable with a certain percentage of people. But beyond that, these races are for raising money. In Africa right now, there's a 50% mortality rate for kids under five. I have a six-year-old. Could I imagine saying, I better have two kids because one's probably not going to make it. Like, that's ridiculous. And you look into it and you see these, oh, drill a well, do a water project, whatever. If you average it out, it's fifty dollars a kid. It only costs fifty dollars a kid to give them everything they need: water, education, clothing, medicine, whatever. Fifty bucks for life, not per month, like for life. So through these races and through the fundraising that we've been able to do, God is able to help six hundred kids through every race that I finished but most people would probably look at it as a failure now I want to close going back to my pizza box because if I just showed it earlier that would have been a dumb analogy pizza box has a purpose right to protect the pizza but the thing is this is the Christmas season right this is the season when God shows us exactly how much he loves us in the most tangible way he could. This is when we celebrate God giving his son to the world where he became one of us, where he lived a perfect life as an example for us and where he died a horrific death on our behalf to take the consequences for our sins. And through that death, he sent the Holy Spirit to fill us and to guide us You see, it's through this season that our empty pizza boxes get filled. That through the leading and the prompting of the Holy Spirit, God guides us and directs us through opportunities that we have no talent in and no interest in to the purpose that he created us for. Whereas a pizza box has a purpose, it also points to something. You see, for years, I was a Myers pizza box trying to do things my own way. I built the walls. I created the systems. I did just what the Egyptians did to try to control the chaos that I couldn't control in my own life. But it didn't work. And it may not be working for you. It's this season that God invites us to put our faith completely in him. To say yes to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. To say yes to those opportunities he puts in our life. To be filled with the Holy Spirit. My question to you as I close is when people look at your life do they see a person striving to accomplish on their own? Do they see people striving to control their life by their own efforts? Or do they see a person who is obediently saying yes to God? Do they see a person who God is acting miraculously through in ways that they can't understand or imagine? Do they see something that's somebody that's accomplishing that only God can do through his strength and his power? Or do they see people accomplishing that they are clearly doing through their power? It is this week especially that we need to ask ourselves the question, how are we living? Are we allowing God and the Holy Spirit to work through us or are we trying to do it on our own? If you haven't put your faith in Jesus yet, if you haven't accepted the Holy Spirit inside of you, this is one of the best weeks to really give it some thought. There are people in the back who would love to answer your questions, who would love to pray with you. Will you join me in prayer? God, we thank you for absolutely everything that you do. But more than that, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you love us so much that you would send your son Jesus into the world to live a perfect life, and to die a horrific death, to take the consequences of our sins away from us so we can have a relationship with you. We pray that you fill us with the Holy Spirit to overflowing, that you start a great work in each of us to break down the walls, to help us to trust you completely, to give us those opportunities and help us have the courage to say yes so that we can find the purpose that you have for our lives. Today I pray for surrender. I pray that not only those of us who have put our faith in you surrender every bit of ourselves, but I pray for those who haven't yet put their faith in you that you help them to tangibly feel your love this season. That you help them to have the courage to ask questions and seek after you, and that this is the season that they finally make a decision to follow you. I pray that you take what the enemy meant for good, what the enemy meant for evil, and turn it for our good. And you let us see the victory that you have planned for our lives and for those around us through our lives. We thank you for absolutely everything and it's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.